you're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. If you can get 80% of enjoyment from what you do from Monday to Friday or whenever your working week is, you're doing pretty well, I reckon. Because a lot of people don't go around below 10%. And the rest of it is they've got to make money to pay the bills. Anger is a, a completely normal emotion. And for me, the thing was to accept it will never go away completely. But you've just got to kind of handle it. Don't let it get in the way of your future because then it's being really negative. We all buy house insurance in case the house burns down, something we don't want to happen. But we don't think about, wait a minute, what happens if my job needs to change? What happens if my job goes? And I think we should more. And I think there's a very positive element about it because you can think about, well, maybe I could do that. You know what? I'm quite interested in doing that. Hi and welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time is Adrian Warner. He's had a long and distinguished career in sports journalism, worked for Reuters. Evening Standard, the BBC, covered many Olympics, many World Cups. A few years ago, he went through a pivot in his career, made redundant, and it led to a lot of introspection, also led to a book. And I wanted to explore this particular topic because it struck me that the sports media industry, like the sports industry itself, is going to change a lot on the back of the coronavirus crisis. So what can we learn from what Adrian has been through? Remember, you can follow me at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Go to mrrichardclark.com to sign up to my newsletter, read my blog, listen to other podcasts, or contact me should you need a consultant. Anyway, let's talk about changing your life due to an enforced change in your career with this man. My name is Adrian Warner. I was a full-time journalist for more than 30 years. I started in Fleet Street Reuters in the late uh, in the mid-80s, actually. I spent 17 years there. I was a foreign correspondent for 10 years in Germany when the Berlin Wall fell, but focusing largely on on sport. And then I went to the Evening Standard for five or six years, and then I went to the BBC as their Olympics correspondent at BBC London for another seven years. And then I was made redundant uh, in 2015, and uh, I've since become a university lecturer in journalism and I do various freelance work, some writing, some sports reporting still, but it's quite a small part of what I do now. I work a lot with NHS doctors uh, and senior NHS uh, management on media training. Uh, and I do do a little bit of sports media training, but I make my living from all sorts of different things now. Thanks for your time, Adrian. You wrote a book also called Recovering from Redundancy about what happened to you after leaving the BBC. Uh, Just just tell us quickly what that was about and what message you were trying to get across. And also, I suppose, what lessons it's got for the current crisis, because we've been discussing there is a concern about the sports media industry going forward, what it'll look like on the back of the coronavirus situation. Yes, well, actually, one of the one of the main reasons I wrote that book is is because I was coaching, my son was playing rugby at the time, and I was coaching uh, rugby and refereeing rugby. And, and I was down at the rugby club one morning, and there were six of us, six of us fathers who developed into coaches at the club at a particular age group. And I looked around at us all, and four of us had just been made redundant across a range of industries from other lawyer, um, 
uh, a, a management consultant, all, all different types of uh, of careers. And I just thought, hang on a minute, this is this is kind of the way the world's looking at the moment. It's pretty tough when you get in into your fifties. And I think in the sports world, I then looked across my um, sports colleagues, and I saw many friends and and colleagues uh, losing their jobs in their fifties. Um, and having to uh, to survive for what usually should be a very successful part of uh, their career. And I thought, well, you know, and I'd gone through a difficult period after I was made redundant by the BBC. And I thought, well, I think maybe if I can write a book, there's two things it's going to do. It's going to help me because I'm going to put my ideas down on paper and kind of have some kind of therapy through that, if you like. But the second time, the second reason really was I thought, well, maybe I can help people um in, in any way that they may know that this is how you feel and i wanted to write it in that way and i therefore wrote it in a very personal way but also i talked to a lot of people um and did a lot of the normal kind of research that a journalist is trained to do and i tried to put down um uh, down the, the challenges of what people needed to do whether it's simple things from working from home how to put your cv together in a world where computers will read your cv first uh, before an actual human being does and and that means you've got to structure it in a different in a different way um and all those kind of things uh, i i talked about how to deal with relationships with former colleagues um and the whole book really um i i had in about 12 chapters um going to the job center that was a hard one how do you go to a job center for the first time if you've worked for 30 odd years and you've paid your money into the system um it's and you've never had to support your you've always been able to support you and your family it's pretty tough to go down a a job center and then the whole thing about applying for jobs and dealing with rejection but also most importantly uh the one thing that i learned is how you can look at the skills you have for the particular job you have and you can use them for other jobs and uh, you realize therefore that you have more skills than actually you thought you had and you're not one dimensional uh, because I think if you're going to survive you need to be able to turn your hands to a lot of things how much of that is applicable now because we've seen lots of uh, sports commentators sports journalists talking about themselves on social media in the current coronavirus crisis and of course when there's no sport and they're all freelance they don't work they don't get paid um, there's also a concern about what a sport will look like afterwards and that will have a knock-on effect to the way sports media looks afterwards. So what lessons can you take from what you've written and apply them now? Well, the one thing I hope is that we're not going to lose a lot of journalists who don't survive through this period. I'm hoping that, that some of the government measures are going to help journalists survive. But you can look at it and think many uh, journalists, freelance journalists, do operate effectively on a zero hours contract um you know if there's no report to provide they're not going to get paid some are on retainers uh but majority are paid if you like match by match so um you do wonder how many are going to survive i think what from what i've wrote it, it, it this is certainly a time for a reflection isn't it and one of the things i write about the book is that you have to kind of reflect about what you can do, what skills you have, and, and maybe there are other things that you want to do with your life. Um, 
And I think all of us, as we sit at home in this kind of lockdown, will be reflecting on that. Am I doing what I want to do in life? And I think maybe quite a few of them might think, well, you know what? I'm not. I've, I'm doing this because I've made, uh, I can make my money and pay my bills, but maybe I want to do something else. And they might be thinking the financial ways and practical ways uh, of doing that and making that step to do something different. And then my book's also about that. It's about, I hope it could be read by somebody who is in a job who's thinking, well, you know, one day I might not have this job. What am I going to do? And and that makes you think it's sometimes you can turn that into a positive and think about, well, you know, I've always wanted to do that. How could I do that? Uh, and they may well be doing that as well. So is it a time for getting out of fr- in front of this to a certain extent? Because no one really thinks they're going to get made redundant. Or No, that's not really true. That, they, it's in the back of their mind, but it's not in the forefront of the mind. Shall I put it that way? And is this a time where you can start to get in front of this issue and not let it happen to you, but shape a future that you can create for yourself which means you've got a little bit more control which means some of the emotions surrounding it are slightly different don't you think that's crucial i think that's crucial i, I did a piece but people don't fun. do it but people don't do it right they let things happen to themselves well of course they do and and i was guilty of that um but i think the one lesson uh, i've had from the last five or six years is that everybody whether you're in a job that's completely you think is completely secure should be thinking about what happens if this job goes. It's not negative. We all buy um, car insurance in case we have an accident, the accident we don't want to have. We all buy house insurance in case the house burns down, something we don't want to happen. But we don't think about, wait a minute, what happens if my job needs to change? What happens if my job goes? And I think we should more. And I think there's a very positive element about it because you can think about, well, maybe I could do that. You know what? I'm quite interested in doing that. And I believe what people should be doing is while they're in their jobs, exploring those things, not going around saying, I want to change, I want to change, just finding some interesting uh, factors about what that new life could be like and finding out, talking to people. I think we all should be doing this in our jobs, always thinking, oh, you know what? There might be something different I could do. Now, you may not do it. But it, it can make people feel much more secure if they know maybe that they could do something else. I mean, I, I remember working with journalists, who some of whom did some study in public relations while they were still journalists. Um, I know two people who did that, who eventually did go into public relations and communications. But they felt much more secure by planning uh, for something else. Um, and I, I don't think that's a negative. But I do agree with you, Rich, that we're in this kind of situation, aren't we, where we all were so busy dealing with um, what we have to deal with every day, the job, et cetera, et cetera, that we don't think about the bigger picture. And I, if there's anything that I hope my book says to people, it's you've got to try and think about the bigger picture and more and more. And especially as you get older, I think it's when you get into your 50s you want to if you can have more control over your life and that's what's frightening if you're made redundant because suddenly you've lost control uh and i think it can help to to think about these things to reflect on what what else you could do and maybe um the grass does look greener on the other side and it is greener 
So why not make that change while you've got control of it? There's a lot of fear, though, isn't there? There's a lot of fear, and we wrap up our identities within our jobs. And as you say, if you've got to middle age, then your career will have been in an ascent, I suppose. It'll have gone forward. You'd have got more gravitas, more respect, more money, etc. And then a lot of people in your situation, and it's happened to me to a certain extent as well, you have this jolt. So how do you deal with the emotions? I mean, the first first two chapters of your book are about anger and handling former, former colleagues. So that's kind of the emotional side, isn't it? The ego, the identity side. So how did you cope with that? Well, how did you? Um, <laughs> a, bit, a bit of sulking um, to start with. Um, but also, um, I've written a book, uh, which is a positive side of it. I got myself busy and developed a consultancy. Um, I started to... I mean, the, one thing I did do is go back and, uh, having read round the topic, uh, and this is a little bit of feeding back into the... Um, uh, 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 reinvention that you've already alluded to. I looked at what made me happy when I was a kid, like an eight to 14, 15 year old. Now, I always wanted to be a sports journalist and I wrote. So I've gone back to writing. Now, as my career has gone forward, I've had more and more seniority. I've written less. I get more pleasure from writing than anything else. So I've gone back into that. It won't earn me a great deal of money uh, because you don't earn a great deal of money as an author or a journalist these days. You earn more money as a as a manager of journalists or an editor, et cetera, et cetera. But it makes me happier. So there's certain things I've done, but there has been awful emotional ups and downs and jealousies and fears and angers, et cetera, behind it. You know, I think that's fascinating. I think it's interesting you saying, saying what you've done and what what you always enjoyed, uh, especially when you were young. At the end of the day, that's really important, and that can be part of your uh, reflection of your life. You know, you can sit down and think, well, you know, what do I want to do? I've got, you know, I, I don't. We none of us know how long we've got, but but you know, if you've got think, if you think your working career's got another ten, fifteen years, what do I want to spend the next ten, fifteen years doing? Now, that sounds a terribly luxurious question to be able to ask yourself um, and many people can't ask that question they just think I've got to make enough money to pay the bills mm. of course and we all have that but there are ways in which you can find that satisfaction and if you I, I agree with the writing um, it's it's equally as, as important to me I know exactly what you mean and and I try and write um, as much as I can um, although I don't primarily make uh, my income now from from writing, as far as the um, emotions were concerned, they were more about um, the, the the redundancy, and that's going back to those guys on the rugby field. You know, uh, four or six of them being made redundant. How did they deal with the all of them? And the people I spoke to as well, other people I spoke to, many people get are angry, and it's about han handling that anger because um, you know anger is 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 a, a completely normal emotion and uh, I think that for me the thing was to accept that it might it will never go away completely but you've just got to kind of handle it don't let it get in the way of 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 your future because then it's being really negative and I talk about the, the things that you can you can do to help that um, but 
I, I mean, I, I think you, you, my general feeling was that um, you have to kind of turn the negative in into a into a positive, uh, and try and and this is what you've done. And but focus on what makes you happy, and I think that's important because everybody is different, um, and you may not be able to make all of your income from the thing that makes you happy and you might have to do other things that kind of make you reasonably happy or some things are actually quite frankly you're not that interested in but they're not that bad uh, and they make you enough money um you know but i mean i've been fortunate in going into the university world that you know i'm i'm dealing with a lot of young students who who want to come into the industry uh, and have a lot of positivity so um, that's great and if I and I if I can help develop them I get a, a satisfaction from developing young journalists now that go on uh, to do well and I'm particularly interested in making sure that our um, industry is more diverse more women more people BA ME uh, those kind of things and if and in that way I'm playing a different kind of role but I agree with you I kind of like the writing too <laughs> it just doesn't pay the bills but it, and you've you've alluded to it that this conversation there's a this feeling that you have there can be some guilt behind it as well because as you said um th this is all a privileged position there are many people in walks of life who don't get the luxury of choice so there's guilt over the very emotions you're feeling do you, yeah, do you agree with that? Do you get that? Yeah, I, you know what, though? I think, Richard, I think one of the things that um, I learned is that actually it's the organisation that you work for that's very important as well in terms of how people regard you. <clears throat> you find out when that organisation is taken away from your name tag, if you like, who your real friends are because there are many people who just fall away and aren't interested because you, they can't use you then to get their message out um you know and i but i think if you're cynical enough and if you've been a journalist for 30 odd years you're pretty cynical enough that you know that kind of in the back of your mind uh, already um so it is it is kind of frustrating in in that way um i just think i think going back to what we were talking about in terms of the sports media and how it's going to be after this terrible crisis we're going through i mean it was going through I could see a crisis for somebody in their 50s like me anyway. And we've seen loads of uh, people losing their jobs of that age as, a, as an industry looks to younger and, let's face it, cheaper, cheaper staff. Um, and also, I think, also looking to use all the different uh, new social media. And, and there is a kind of myth in our industry, and it, it irritates me a bit, that older people can't. Uh, react to all the latest different types of social media um, which I think is complete nonsense but it's a kind of predominantly there uh, in the industry so it's much harder I think uh, to get to get a role now in your 50s than probably it has been for many 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 years I think the other aspect of that is that there is um, a need from various media organisations, I think the BBC is, is is one of these, where they need to appeal to the young, and the the views of middle aged older people are not so strategically important for whatever reason. And behind that, 
is the feeling, and this taps into what you're saying about social media, that in order to reach the young, you have to be young. And that, and that also puts uh, older people into a more difficult position in terms of jobs and skills and the areas that you've spoken about. Um, and I fundamentally disagree with that. Um, yeah, that, that, that storytelling and uh, movies that are made and books that are written. Uh, I mean, J.K. Rowling energised a whole generation of millennials as far as I was concerned, but she was much older. And the movies that they're watching were made by older people as well. And yet there's this feeling that, that the, the cult of youth, which has been going on for ages, it was there when I was young as well, um, it just seems to be a little bit stronger now. And there's a, a real strategic push to speak to them in a certain way. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying there? Yeah, and also, I, I just think that it, that idea, and I agree, it's there, and and I, I don't agree with it. Inevitably, I'm not going to agree with it, because I'm not at, at the young end of the um, equation. But the reason I don't agree with it is, actually, I think it's quite an insult to young people. That in order to attract young people, you have to get younger people. Well, you know, young people are equally interested in finding out uh, things from people who've had more experience than um, than they are from somebody who might only just be 10 years older than them and have 10 years more experience. You know, as a, a friend of mine has um, a son in Australia who's who, who's just done a fascinating project where they bring together people in their kind of 70s who've retired together with teenagers to talk about things. And it was very, very successful and a and fascinating project from the teenager's point of view that the teenager was really interested in in the experience um, of of the seventy year old, and I think we often um, ignore the experiences of people. Uh, we re retire people off or make them redundant, and then we totally ignore the great experience we have, and then the next generation reinvent the wheel. I mean, it's ridiculous. We should be using those skills, and and also it's good for the mental health of many people in the seventies to realise that they've got a lot to offer. So I'm not quite sure we're getting it right in our society. And certainly in the media world, I agree, we're seeing all sorts of developments where really good journalists are not are finding they can no longer um, be employed by uh, organisations anymore because they want to look for young younger people. I mean, I'm not sure it really is improving the quality that you're giving. And at the end of the day, that is what the person listening or watching or reading wants better quality. Just to go down, uh, go off on a slight tangent in this area, but where do you stand on attention spans? Because we're always told that media needs to be shorter, sharper, um, because particularly the younger audience, the millennial audience, etc., um, have shorter attention spans has that come through in the way that you've taught your students and the media that you and the content you increasingly make today are you affected by that notion well yeah i think i think there are two elements to that in terms of um that's interesting that you bring that up because that's an attention span i mean we were always told that the young generation can multitask firstly i'm not sure i believe that I'm not sure. I think they like to think that they can. That they, I just think they generally do. They listen to things on their laptop at the same time as writing 
uh, something on Snapchat or something like that. So they are doing. But is that any different from me chopping onions and listening to Radio 5? I don't know. I, I don't think it is really. But the, the point about that is um, the statistics actually, interestingly, now are showing that people do want to read longer material. If you look on the net, for example, people want to read 300 words or whatever maximum of a news story. Um, and then they don't want to read anything between 400 and 600 because they think, one, it's too long for a news story and not long enough for a big read or a long feature. But they are then, as soon as you get from 1,000 to 2,000 words, they are reading long analysis. Now, that's the one thing. I don't know about you, Richard. I thought when the Internet came along, I thought long analysis was going to be kicked into the long grass, if you like. Um, but it hasn't been because people want – you've seen this with organizations like New York Times, Washington Post. When they do a big analysis of something, those those pieces go on for, for pages and pages and pages with ads in between on the net. But people are reading them. Financial Times has shown this with their ana analytics. People want a long read as well. So I'm not, I think it's a bit simplistic to say the whole world is, is looking for a quick, a quick read. I think what they are doing is they scan. They scan a lot. They go through Twitter to find out what's happening with their news or, or any other sort of form of social media. They look, oh yeah, that's happening, that's happening. Have a quick read and and then they think, right, do I want to read more about that? They may read long. Now, do all students do this? Uh, I have to encourage my students to read long more, I, to read more features. Um, partly that is because some of those features are behind a paywall now uh, in, in many organizations. But I encourage them to to read long because the best writing, as you know, is, is with your Paul Haywards who are writing long uh, and you need to be able not to if you want to become a good journalist you need to read good journalists obviously so I do encourage my students to read long and many of them possibly take in information quickly I don't know if you find that with young but I don't believe and I had it's interesting I was having a discussion with my 20 year old 20 year old son about this the other night I do believe that young generation is also prepared to listen to arguments over a long a period of time if you like for example a lot of uh, young people get their information from YouTube and they will sit and listen to an expert droning what I would say droning on for 15 20 minutes which in television terms is 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 a really long time um, and somebody who's who's trained in television it's really hard to make 20 minutes a good telly uh, but they will listen to those things so they are prepared they do have an attention span and I think it's too simplistic to think. Oh, they don't. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the my kids are a bit younger than yours, but um, they are putting on YouTube as a background to doing something else. Um, if if my son's going to play a game, YouTube will be on the background playing whatever it is, and it, and being <laughs> where and where this is an advantage is having a younger brain and soaking up information all but almost by osmosis. It is certainly easier. Um, my daughter might be having uh, a YouTube on while she's doing her homework, which is not what I'm too pleased about, but she does it. Um, so I do think it's a little bit of background. And some of these videos are are very long, as, as you say. I think another aspect of this, just to move on to attention spans and the way content has changed, is I, th I do think podcasts, the growth of podcasts is 
almost as I see it almost as a, a reaction to to a certain extent what news has done, where there's brevity over lots of smaller items. That there's there's lots of items covered to a lack of depth. Whereas a podcast, you know, I, I've listened to four hour podcasts with one person talking. It's two two people talking, but it's, if it's interesting and it's something, if it, a if it's I'm interested and b if it's interesting, I can stick with it. I can absolutely stick with it. And the growth of podcasts is an indication to me that people do want to deep dive into into their niches. And of course, with the content revolution that's happened over the last 20 or 30 years, they've been allowed to do that because you can have a podcast supporting uh, Walking the Dead or The Sopranos or whatever. You never used to have that available. So that's the way I see it. Thoughts? Yeah, and I, and I think also that the way we live. I mean, obviously, we're all living in a different way at the moment. But but the way we can down that onto your phone, download it onto your phone, and then jump on the train and listen to a podcast. Which I know uh, I know loads of people who do that. That's when they listen to a lot of their podcasts uh, on their journeys, either in the car or or in on the train. You know, uh, people are doing a lot of that, which isn't great actually for the newspaper industry, to be honest. No, um, but. Yes, I, I, I've actually been quite, I wondered about podcasting and then I kind of realised that you're right, that it's 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 the actual specialist kind of thing that, that, that attracts people. You know, if you want to have podcasting on a model railway building, right, you can, I'm sure you can find one, people will want to listen to that. It's a very specialist market, but they will want to listen to it. You know, if you want a podcast on vegan cooking, you will you will i'm sure find it and i think that's what's also interesting that people can find like-minded people who are giving them interesting information as well as entertaining them yeah i mean this podcast is called sports content strategy because that's that's the search term that you would put into google um if you were if you were searching for this particular topic and that's that's the obviously the need i'm trying trying to to fulfill and you talk about being on the train or, or, or in the car or whatever. Radio, to a certain extent, has always been the medium you consume while you're doing something else. Ever since sort of the 50s, it, it's changed. I mean, my parents would talk about sitting down and listening to the radio. Well, that, that's never been part of my life. Radio is something I consume while driving, while cooking, while wandering around the house with my headphones on, do, doing stuff. Whereas television, you you even that's moved a little bit. And now most people are... Well, a lot of people, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people are second screening while they watch television, no matter what it is, whether it's football or whether it's anything else. If I'm watching a news show, if there's a hashtag attached to that news show or that documentary, I'll be on Twitter scrolling through what other people are talking about while I'm watching that show, even if it's a live show. So that's probably one of the strengths of radio and why it's been, in my opinion anyway, that's why it's been... um, relatively robust is because because you consume it while you're doing something else it fits with the modern age which is a little bit more like that if you know what i mean so yeah absolutely i mean i agree with you i listen to a lot of radio probably more radio than i ever watch uh television because you can do something else while but also i think also the great thing about radio is it allows like the podcast it allows more time for a subject to be discussed and um television doesn't uh for loads of reasons you have to keep attention you've got to have all the pictures for it and talking heads on television 
just are not great uh, television, to be honest. Whereas radio, you can you can listen to, um, uh, say, ex-footballers talking about various bits of the football industry at the moment, or rugby players, or or whatever, and you can get a fascinating hour debate that would be impossible to put on television because it would be really hard to keep its momentum um, because it draws people in. I agree, and that's I think that's what the podcast is 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 doing. And I suppose at the moment, a lot of people, you know. Actually, probably for the first time, it's interesting you said your parents sat down and listened to the radio. Um, I wonder if one or two people are actually doing more of that now, sitting down and listening to those podcasts that they normally listen to when they were going to work on the train. Yeah, I think I heard a stat saying that podcast listening was actually down a little bit just because you weren't travelling. Because people aren't commuting, and so many of—I mean, there's a theory around podcasts that they should be 20, 25 minutes long because that's the average length of a commute. That's what people suggest. I—I I ignore that person. I want an hour because I want to go deep. But that's—that's that's my thing. But because I think podcasts are so based around that concept of doing something else, driving somewhere, and you—and you have it on your on your stereo, or going on the train on the way to work. And because we're not doing that, we're a little bit out of the the loop. I, that's what I've heard. It, I'm not not particularly scientific but there we are that's interesting now i i am interested about your worries about the sports industry because i've i haven't thought deeply but i have been thinking about this um i'm worried that you think that it won't be able to bounce back obviously there are going to be a lot of clubs that are going to struggle financially but you hope you do you think a lot of it a lot of people might just go to the wall i think there's a possibility for a reset in terms of the way we consume and and our sport but also the way our sport is is set up there are clubs football clubs that are going to struggle to survive and and that's no different to the situation that they've been in for a a long period of time however uh, I do feel that Clubs might have to, um, if they do exist, and I think some will go to the wall in various sports. I'm a big cricket fan. How are we going to keep 18 counties? I mean, that's been a question for ages. And if you were ever going to combine counties, merge a couple of counties together, now would be the time to do it. If you were ever going to uh, 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 allow 10 of the 92 football clubs to go, now would be the time to, to do it. But I think above and beyond that, even if we keep all of those clubs, I think the the money within the game is going to be reduced, and this will affect, I think going forward, it will affect players right at the top, but certainly players at the bottom. So there's the potential to see more part-time clubs coming forward, and more and and and, and less money in in the game has the ability to filter down or filter out. And while that is going on, there, there's also media companies are going to be stretched at, at the moment. Local newspapers, as we know, have been decimated. Uh, I shouldn't use that word, that's the wrong word but, but they've been cut cold, mm-hmm. they're a, a fraction of what, what they used to be and the business models holding up uh, some of the uh, newer entities are going to be extremely uh, stretched and stretched to the point of breaking by the new environment so on both sides of it I see a contraction it might be a situation where the older journalists are likely to be cut uh, and more younger journalists coming on uh, uh, okay that's fine that that still means the same amount of jobs 
are there. Um, however, they're lesser paid jobs. And with all due respect to any student coming into ju- journalism, um, they don't have the same ex- experience and, and the craft to tell the same story. So I, I can see a reduction in quality to a certain extent. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but that's what I'm fearing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting um, interesting thoughts. You know, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the top end of whether it's football or rugby will will be fine. Um, I mean, they'll have one or two bumps along the road, but I think they'll be okay. But I, I agree with you. I think a lot of football for so many years has been um, businesses that are really run very tightly with. You know, I mean, there were problems a few years ago of turnover being more than 100 of, of players' salary being more than 100% of turnover, things like that. That's basically football clubs relying on the fact that they're going to make match day income and 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 get uh, get promoted and make more money, etc. I think at the bottom end, uh, I agree. I think you're going to see the the by not having that match day income. And they may not get that match day income for quite some time. I, I, I can't see how the government can agree to allowing 40,000, 50,000 people to come together at a place. I just, for a while, I just don't think that's going to happen. And it may be the end of the year before that's anywhere near happening. Uh, and, it, and, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was talking about my, my partner is a doctor and we were talking about that last night. And I can't see how you can start having massive sports events until... You have found a vaccine or you have found um, uh, uh, some kind of um, not cure, but treatment that's going to stop people dying because people, I think, are going to be very reluctant to go into big crowds. Um, And I think that's sometimes been forgotten as an assumption. There is an assumption in all this. And this is a long way away from sport. But there is an assumption that when we finished all this, that everybody's going to be running down the pub, running to concerts, running to football matches. Well, are they? Because you've now <laughs> yeah. told the public of the dangers of standing two, less than two metres uh, away from somebody. You've spent weeks telling them this. They are not suddenly going to go, oh, yeah, you know what the one thing I want to do is go to a gig and be really close to about 100 people or a football match. I think it's going to take a while, and I think sport will... I think it's going to be very difficult for sport to continue as in the same way. That doesn't mean we won't have games behind closed doors. I think that's almost inevitable. Um, but that's also not a great spectacle. Um, I've covered matches behind game, uh, you know, uh, behind closed doors. They're not great spectacles. They don't make great telly. Um, and so, even though you might have two great teams, uh, they're not. I think you're right. I think sport is going to uh, struggle. And it's that match day income that is so important, whether you're Manchester United or Northampton Town, you need that match day income. I think also that people won't have the money to spend. That, that's the fear that, that with the economy contracting by yeah. anything between 15 to 30 percent, I've seen those figures flown around. That's, that's a considerable amount. If we're looking at unemployment at three or four million, I've seen that figure uh, floated around. OK, so... Are people going? Yeah, one of the first things you'll cut back on would be spending on going to see a football match and and Sky or BT Sport, and all that has a knock-on effect for the sports industry. Mm. And that's yeah, think, and, and uh, that's yeah. that's what some of my fears are based on. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the other the other thing is that you could have a, a situation where people say, "God, I can't wait." You know, I want you know, I can't wait to be watching it again. 
but I agree if, if um, when you're looking at looking at uh, cutting back it's those kind of things that you say well and also remember people are spending now weeks developing other activities and discovering that actually you know what I like those um, family walks on a Saturday afternoon um, you know do I want to give that up and go and watch the local football club I'm not sure I do anymore you know um, I think people it may be a big a big challenge for the sports industry and uh, I think I'm not I find it a little bit funny at the moment I don't know what you think Richard but I find that much as I love sport and I've made a career out of sport I kind of see it's a bit of an irrelevance at the moment and all of its toing and froing whether they're going to have this event and that event I kind of, I, I sort of think you know what I don't think people care at the moment there are more important things um, I do want it, of course I want it to survive, because I think it's a crucial part of, it, of, of, of our lives across the world. But I sometimes think, should it be, should, you know, should we be playing football in May or June? Those kind of debates, I don't know about you, I find them a, a, a little bit um, distasteful, I'm sorry. Well, it's always been a wonderful waste of time, right? Sport, <laughs> it's in that, in that yeah, wonderful but, sense. But not because, not because of that, I just kind of think, you know what, Sometimes it's important to sit back and, and just be quiet and make your planning, but just don't don't debate this and that. About you. Just do what you can. And I think there's a lot of football clubs, by the way, and a lot of footballers, and I know this, um, through uh, private things, doing a lot of great things um, at, at this moment to help, to help the NHS. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of donations um, going into hospitals. My... Uh, my partner, you know, she says they get food from they, they, they're overflowing with free food in the hospital donated by people from outside. People who are donating their properties near hospitals so that uh, people can stay in them. There's a lot of great work going on in our society at the moment. And so I, I don't mean to knock society in that. It's fantastic. And a lot of it is coming also from the sports world. And it's not being publicized. People are doing it quietly and just doing their bit. You know what, I just kind of think, look, okay, postpone the Olympics for a year, that makes a lot of sense. The same with the European Championships. Let's hope it's going to be great next summer and we're going to have a great summer of sport. I hope so. But sometimes when I hear that, you know, people worrying about whether there's going to be behind closed doors, Premier League finished, I kind of think, you know what, there are more important things to worry about at the moment. Yeah, a couple of things I say to that is, is firstly, I think the I think it was a South Ch Southampton chairman or, or one of the the leading lights at Southampton was suggesting that the government had um, indicated that getting pre the Premier League playing again was considered important for the country uh, because it is that amusement, it is that thing we talk about, that gossip that we that that that, that we uh, we exchange. Um, so there is that, but I also think more importantly than that. There is, and this is a wider issue, but let's just talk about sport. There is an opportunity to reframe sport in a better way, in a more meaningful way, because, in in my opinion, it has got out of hand to a certain extent with the with the the culture of of money, of greed, of avarice, and it's it's we can reset that. And what's been important and made positive headlines is the fact that as you say football and other sports have responded wonderfully well in many ways so let's keep that going and let's you talk about whether 
people will come back to sport. Well, I think there's a there's a better chance of them coming back to sport if they can retain the emotion we've got at the moment. It could dissipate afterwards, but if they retain, we've got the emotion we've got at the moment, and they feel that that sport is a is a social good, and clubs are prepared to position themselves as a community asset. And that's what you know. Look at what Watford have done. My own cricket club, Essex County Cricket Club. I mean, a year after a year earlier, they were kicking off against. Hampshire down at the Aegeus Bowl and exactly a year later six of the players were making thousands of meals for NHS staff you know with big vats of curry and rice going on so they've Brilliant. got they've got their hands dirty they've got their hands dirty so let's retain that because that's showing sport as a community asset and you know one thing that's come out of this that's a positive uh, result is the more communal feel and the fact we are we are um uh, valuing the NHS and valuing our communities a little bit more because over the last 30 years that seems to have we've moved away from that unfortunately so yeah I think that's interesting I think uh, how um, because there's no doubt that I think sports clubs have lost have lost that a bit partly that's because um, especially in you know rich sports like football where you know in the old days you'd see You'd see your, the guy who's playing for your football team. You might see him down the pub or in the bookies or, um, you know, in the butchers or whatever. And you'd say hello and thank you know, well done on Saturday and that kind of thing. And that happened. I know. Whereas you, I think the chances of that really happening these days with some of those premiership footballers, um, it, it, they live in a different world. And, and to a certain extent, they have to live in a different world. Um and I think that has been lost, that connection with a club. And I think clubs have done really, worked really hard to try and get that connection back as, as kind of clients. But I agree with you. Maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a real uh, opportunity for sport to, to show that it, it's positive side. Um, I've never personally been against people making uh, a lot of money from the sport that they, that they carry out simply because their careers are very short. And quite frankly, nobody says that a pop star shouldn't make a certain amount of money. Uh, they're performers like that. Why, why shouldn't they make money from what is a very short career and that can be ended by one bad tackle? And, and I therefore, um, what, I, and what I'd like to see is more spreading of that cash across the whole industry so that, you know, the League One and League Two uh, clubs can get more uh, can can survive and that we don't have football just being about the 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 Premier League etc in in this country um, so that's that's what I'd like to see but I've never been against footballers making money they should make money they're performers and what they do is broadcast all over the world and therefore they should they should get their due of that just like uh, Madonna would or or Beyonce or whatever I think that's fine um, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be an interesting period to see. I mean, I just hope we don't see a massive uh, uh, bankruptcy of, of clubs. I really would hate to see that across, especially, you know, uh, rugby. Rugby has got challenges. We've, we saw that before the lockdown. Uh, we want to see these sports, um, want to see these sports survive and, uh, and that many clubs across the country, and I agree with you that, you know, look at um, in towns, if you look at things like Rugby League and the, a lot of the northern towns, places like Wigan and Widnes, they're defined by their Rugby League. 
success. Um, and and I don't, I'd hate to see uh, that that die. And I I, I kind of think it won't, Richard. I think even if we get to bad times, I think will and bad and and and, and uh, an economic recession, which is almost kind of inevitable. I do think that society has been changed by all of this. And um, I think sport will always have its role there. Talking about positive change, just to take us on a slightly different, in a different direction. What positives have you learned from moving into different areas in your career? I, you know, what positives have come out of lecturing? Uh, what have you learned? How has it changed you in a positive way? Um, I, th- I, th- I think, look, I, th- I think the positive thing about doing something new and doing something that um, is different, same with my kind of media training and all, all those kind of things, is that it puts you on the spot again. Um, you know, the reality is I could have spent 10 years making uh, making television, reporting on sport, going to the Olympic Games, but you know what? I've done that. I've been to 14 Olympics and five World Cups and whatever. And if I went again, it, would it be a big challenge? Now, I've done it before. Um, the stories might be different. But you, you're into an environment where you're kind of comfortable. And I think the advantage when you do something different is you're not comfortable. And therefore, you are challenged. Um, and... You know, even if it is your first, I mean, I hardly slept before uh, when I first started as a, a, a lecturer, you know, because I'd got to go out. How did, how did I fill that time? How did I get the students interested? How did I get these ideas over to them? You know, it's not just a simple matter of standing up in front of uh, somebody for an hour. In fact, you shouldn't do that. That's very much against good teaching practice. You need to get them interactive. Uh, and that's not just students, by the way, young students. It's anybody, anybody who does any kind of business presentation. If you're talking at them for 15 minutes, more than 15 minutes, you're doing it wrong because you're losing their, their attention. You've got to get them involved in the conversation. Um, so I think it just takes you out of your comfort zone. And whilst that is is quite scary, um, it's it is actually good for you. And it makes you sharper and it makes you think, oh, hang on a minute, I can do that. But I'm going to have to think uh, a strategy of how to do that. Don't you think that's right? I mean, you've done loads of different things. It's it's change is good. It's frightening, but it's good. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the book aspect is scaring me to death, to be honest, um, about laying laying some honesty and some truth uh, out in the out in the open. Um, and it is a little bit change or die and uh, 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 i've i've tried in what i've done not to be narrow not to have narrow interests not to have narrow a narrow life to a certain extent so i've wanted to be in different places doing different things and that's and sometimes that decision has involved putting yourself in insecure positions um less money uh, and all those things that are uh, as you talked about you could you could get your ego stroked and go to nice places and be on the TV doing Olympics and World Cups, and that's fine and that's good and a lot of people do that. Um, it, it, it's there's a law of diminishing returns, 
uh, with regard to that in in not with the money but with the with with the narrowness of your life you don't get broad you don't get more rounded you don't have greater experiences and I suppose what I try to do career wise is get the most have the most experiences within my career and and so that aspect of it um has has been positive and I don't I don't regret that side of it it albeit it it puts you in insecure positions and that's the price you pay yeah and you know you know what one of the 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 fun things I do away from my uh work is I sing and I sing in a choir that um is quite um a successful choir and we do everything from you know we've done big big gigs at the O2 with Andrea Bocelli to gone on tour with Noel Gallagher um Ray Davis you know so we've done massive gigs in kind of rock uh, gigs um, in ma- in packed venues. And um, I can tell you that as an ex- in Hyde Park, places like that, Albert Hall. And, and it's an amazing experience to get on a stage, um, even if you're not at the front of the stage, and to perform in front of a big audience like that. Now, is that something that if you'd said to me 10 years ago, that's what you, you, you're going to be doing? I would say, well, don't be ridiculous. Um, but it's an amazing kind of new experience. And how do you deal with that? And how do you? And you know, uh, and I I know now um, that if I go on a stay, you know, we'll, hopefully when we get back, we're we're going to do another gig with uh, Bocelli at the O2. There's twenty two thousand people in that venue when it's full, and he and he fills every seat. And it's an amazing feeling when they start clapping. Even if you're at the back of the stage as one of the backing singers. And um, all those are kind of new experiences that um, if you'd said to me, I say years ago, that's what you're going, you're going to be doing that, I would have said, don't be daft. Is that, is that the wisdom of understanding self-fulfillment rather than doing things that give you the respect of others? Is self, you're, you're respecting yourself by doing something that you want to do for you because you enjoy it, you get something out of it, rather than doing things that give you respect within wider society. You know what, Richard, I think that's what you gain with age. Because somebody once said to me, it doesn't matter what title you have, it's what you do all the time. I think that's really important. You can have an amazing title job, you know, a title for your job, and actually do something that you're absolutely really bored with or you or doesn't fulfill you. Um, and so it, it really is important what you what you do. And I think you learn that uh, with age that respect. Of course, everybody wants respect from their peers. Of course you do. And, you know, when I was writing pieces for the Evening Stand or doing pieces for the BBC, you know, the best respect if it came would come from a fellow colleague somebody who said oh I like that piece or whatever that's the thing that used to satisfy me I I didn't care if people recognized me in the street and said hello or whatever I, that's nice but that wasn't what I did it for I did it because I wanted to do some good journalism and be respected for my peers so we all like that of course we do whatever we do whether we're hairdressers or butchers or, 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 or builders or whatever we want somebody to say that's good work but you have to get some satisfaction from what you do. And we're all kind of seeking that. My, my view is if you, get, if you can get 80% of enjoyment from what you do from Monday to Friday or whenever your working week is, 
you're doing pretty well, I reckon. Because a lot of people don't <laughs> go around below 10%. And the rest of it is they've got to make, I've got to make money to pay the bills. So I think um, in that respect, that's what you've got to kind of seek and try and get as you get older. And you realise as you get older, that is more important than anything else. Do you not think so? Yeah, it's the aspect of making your hobby your job, isn't it? And most sports journalists, actually, that that will that will be a major factor. They will enjoy. Uh, certainly, I did. I, I went to Arsenal as a ten-year-old. I went to Arsenal as a ten-year-old, right? And um, I I was going to Arsenal from. I went to Arsenal before I went to school with my father. And I, um, at the age of 10, I asked for a typewriter for Christmas, which shows how long ago it was. Wow. <laughs> I asked for a typewriter. And I used to go to Arsenal and I, with my dad, and I used to come back and write reports on my typewriter. My brown typewriter with a dodgy E. It was slightly off. And um, that's that was my hobby. Um, and I turned that into my job, literally by writing those reports for Arsenal Football Club, which you can still see now, which were like the official reports for the club almost. So that aspect, and I think a lot of sports journalists, you in in you have to have a passion for sport, and so it's that ultimate trick, isn't it? If you can turn your hobby, get paid for your hobby, turn your hobby into your job, and keep some sort of passion for it, then you are getting that. 80% of your environment because there's always a drag. Once it becomes a job, there's always a drag to a certain extent. But you are getting that enjoyment throughout the week. Um, if you can do that, and as you say, that's a huge trick to pull off. I agree. And Rich, and Rich you ne must never forget that. I, I remember once being at, um, it was the uh, 1994 World Cup final morning and it was um, Brazil against Italy in Los Angeles. And, um, and, there was. I was sitting with a, a lovely friend of mine called Mike Collett, colleague, who football editor of um, Reuters for many years. Um, wrote at the Observer. You know, a great guy. There's not much he doesn't know about football. I know him. He's a Spurs fan, isn't he? Yeah, and he's. That's the only thing I don't like about him. <laughs> he's written books about the FA Cup, etc., about and, and books about Spurs. And um, and we were sitting there. And there was one particular colleague who who just got a bit frustrated about something, you know, it'd been the end of a long tournament and, and and we were kind of talking about it. And then and then he said to me, you know what, Adrian, though, it doesn't really matter, does it? Look, we're sitting here in a Los Angeles diner having our breakfast. And in a few minutes, we're going to get into a car and we're going to drive to Pasadena and we're going to watch the World Cup final. And we're going to report on the World Cup final, um, which will probably cause us a little bit of stress. And then afterwards, we're going to relax and go and have a beer and think about the story we're going to have to do for the follow-up. There are millions of people across the world who would swap positions with us right now. And I said, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I always thought that about World Cup finals and things like that and about Olympic 100 metres finals and whatever, whatever the stress is, look, what a privilege this is. What a privilege it is to be able to think that that's what I'm going to do today and I'm going to get paid. I, I'm reminded of um, of my daughter who was at school when and the, the teacher asked, what does your daddy do? And um, she said, and she was very young at the time, she said he watches football matches. And, uh, and 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 rugby matches, and and they said no no no. What what does your dad? What does he do to make a living? How does he make his money? He watches football matches. 
Right. And the teacher didn't quite get it until I went in one day, explained what I did. I think that's been a privilege and it's been a privilege to uh, have met so many interesting people, not, not just sportsmen, prime ministers and, you know, real kind of really interesting people over the years in my Olympic world. Uh, I met all sorts of different people and that's a privilege. And I've never, ever taken that for granted, Even, you know, and that's the one thing I've uh, I've always tried to think, well, yeah, but you did that. And that's that's a privilege. Most people would have given their right arms to do that. Final question, two parts to it. What's the advice, the final piece of advice you give your students at the end of their academic time with you? And what advice would you give someone in who's in your own position on the back of this particular crisis we're in at the moment who loses their job around 50 and thinks oh I've got another 20 years what am I going to do so students first um well students are given loads of advice the one thing I do is I I treat them right from the beginning as fellow sports journalists I expect them to be professional and the things I kind of remind them are of are of professional discipline in in a in a newsroom or and indeed in a uh, at a sports event and um, the thing i remind them of is that the person sitting next to you um deserves quiet to be able to get on with his job even if you've finished you need to keep quiet and respect him or her because one day he could or she could be deciding whether you're going to get a job or not and i think what i'm saying by that is treat everybody whoever they are around you with respect in this industry simply out of self-preservation because it's a small industry and you never know one day you might need that person to help you and help people. It is a competitive industry, but help people because one day you'll miss the press conference because the, the train was late and you'll need their help. So that's one of the things I give to try and build relationships is, is the one thing I say. Whatever you do, build relationships because you'll need them. To the... Uh, to people who might be facing um, difficulties, the one thing I would say after all this is don't panic. You, there are ways of surviving uh, through something like this. Um, think about the skills you've got. Maybe it's time to, to, to use those skills in a different way. Um, sit down, write down your skills and think how you might be able to use them. Get somebody to help you, somebody who will recognize uh, some of the skills that you might not immediately write down. And you can find a different way out of this. Um, and if it means that you're not going to spend your life covering sport, that's not the end of the world. There are other things you can do. Um, use this as a moment to change direction in a positive way. Um, that doesn't mean it's not it's going to be easy, but I think, you know, my experience is you can do these things if you just apply a certain amount of logic and an analysis to 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 yourself which is probably something that many of us probably don't do enough of on that adrian warner thank you very much thank you you can find sports content strategy on facebook twitter and instagram Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. 
Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. 